reading from the book of Micah. You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are too small to be included among Judah's cities. Yet from you, Israel's future ruler will come for me. His origins go back to the distant past, to days long ago. That is why the Lord will abandon Israel until the time a mother has a child. Then the rest of the Lord's people will return to the people of Israel. The child will become the shepherd of his flock. He will lead them with the strength of the Lord, with the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live in safety because his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. This man will be their peace. The second reading for tonight comes from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 through 45 and 46 through 55. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a city of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the babe in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their imagination of their hearts, he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent, sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his posterity forever. The word of the Lord. sure how a story as wild and actually sort of, for lack of a better word, pagan sounding, makes it into our Christmas celebration so calmly that we hardly blink. The pregnant mother birthing God into the world. It's like the most ancient, the most mythic, the most sort of a little bit unchristian-like thing. 
It resonates with myths that are way older than Christianity. It's very fertility goddess-ish. And Egyptian sun goddess-ish. And yet, patriarchal fundamentalist households admit the pregnant mother birthing God into their households at Christmas. They put her on their mantles and their windowsills. She's on the front lawn of St. Paul's Cathedral. I really, really love it. Mary, the mother of God, worshipped by syncretist Brazilian jungle cults, revered by uptight Swedish Lutherans, venerated by Catholics. It's so sort of outrageously and mysteriously unifying. Across time and culture, like from the dawn of consciousness, people have been drawn to the loved, the beloved mother. Like people need a mother. Miles, my 17-year-old, might disagree. But the story of Mary is a very wild and beautiful and strange and subversive narrative in about 30,000 ways. Like in terms of the religious institution, the very earliest followers of the God that we profess, the God of the Bible, didn't actually have the idea quite down yet that there was only one God. Monotheism had hardly even formed as an idea yet. So when the Hebrews started worshiping God, God was not exactly, precisely like one. So, for example, there was a pretty distinct female aspect of Yahweh. And the distinct female aspect of Yahweh even had names, like the Queen of Heaven. The Queen of Heaven was very, very popular among the people. Archaeologists have found statues of her buried all over Israel. And there are traces of her all over the biblical text. She was like sometimes the consort of Yahweh. She was the beloved mother. She was the companion to women in childbirth, and she helped the world make, make the world fertile. And the folks that were trying to solidify monotheism really, really, really did not like her at all. She was an obstacle and a threat to this sort of important and emerging idea, so the official Hebrew religion was really adamant about getting rid of her, about maligning her. Your average person didn't understand the concept of monotheism, and they loved this great mother. But she threatened monotheism. So the official religion did everything possible to sort of suppress this tendency, this love that people had for the mother. Considering all that, it is astonishing, I think. Crazy, beautiful, wild that in the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ Right off first thing, God becomes incarnate through the womb of a mother. It seems like the purists would be going crazy, you know? How did this story end up here? The institution had been trying to get rid of the beloved mother forever, and here she is. They'd rid the temple of her worship, and in this story, Mary's womb becomes the temple. The temple out of which God emerges into the world clothed in flesh. 
beautiful? The patri- patriarchy was everything in the culture out of which our scripture arises. And the patriarchy was sort of obsessed, I think it's fair to say, with the male seed. Everything was structured around the passing on of the male seed. It's how you traced your ancestry through the male seed. It was how you got your honor, your status, your proper place in the hierarchy through the male seed. Any power that you had came from the male seed. And here in the story of Mary, the story of God becoming incarnate in the world, there is very conspicuously no male seed involved at all. The greatest story ever told, sometimes people call the Christmas story, the birth of Christ doesn't involve the much celebrated male seed. God grew bones and flesh from Mary's cells and blood and DNA. It's in the mother's womb that God becomes human. There is no hue man involved. There is just the hue woman. I'm really not trying to make men feel bad. I like men. I just think it's incredible, remarkable. I love it that in a culture that was obsessed with the phallus, It is completely absent from the story of God coming into the world. The Christmas story may not be really overt about subverting the patriarchy, but there is a subversion embedded in the story because God is born into the world without the male seed. For some reason, what the church is usually emphasized about the virgin birth isn't exactly that. It's more that Mary was a virgin, meaning that she was somehow pure and innocent and untouched. The conception was immaculate, like the virgin birth was somehow spiritual as opposed to physical. The big thing for the church is that there was no physical act of sex involved. But the story of God coming into the world is really astoundingly physical. Jesus is formed in Mary's womb, birthed through the birth canal. Jesus is born like any other child is born. And it isn't a clean thing. And it very, very much involves the body. It just didn't involve the male seed. And maybe that's just emasculating enough that the church has tended to sort of avoid that aspect of it. I don't know. Somehow in Matthew's gospel, Matthew makes the story as much as possible about men. He can't ultimately leave the women out, but it seems like he gives it his best shot. Matthew says that Mary was found to be pregnant, and he doesn't tell us anything about her reaction to it. He says that an angel appeared to Joseph to explain to Joseph what was going on and to urge Joseph not to divorce Mary. The whole deal seems to be worked out in proper patriarchal fashion, without consulting Mary. Luke's story, juxtaposed to that, is incredibly different. In Luke, the angel comes to Mary, and he tells her that she has been chosen to give birth to the Savior. Mary doesn't even for one instant say, wait a minute, let me consult my husband or my husband-to-be. The whole thing seems to be between God and Mary. 
Joseph isn't consulted. In Luke, the angel visits Mary and tells her that not only is she going to have a child, but Elizabeth, a relative of hers, is also pregnant. Elizabeth was old, and people had called her barren. So to hear that she was pregnant must have seemed unbelievable. And Mary immediately runs off to be with Elizabeth. And their meeting is the text that Sonia read tonight. It's really not quite the scene that you would imagine after the kind of news that Mary just received. Like if Mary was acting at all like a proper member of a patriarchal society, she would have immediately gone to Joseph and submissively as possible tried to gently explain what the angel had told her about her pregnancy. That was a pretty critical thing. But in Luke, she doesn't do that at all. Instead, she acts like some crazy pagan woman running off to celebrate her fertility with her pregnant woman's sister. And then she sings this song, or recites this poetry, the Magnificat, which has been called the most revolutionary document in the world. The Russian czars refuse to have it sung at mass. It's that revolutionary. No wonder. Mary praises God for taking down the mighty, for taking down the proud, sending the rich empty away, and raising up those of low degree. The Magnificat is like calling for the radical alteration of everything that is. Cool. I mean, think of the meeting between these women. The unwed pregnant mother meeting the old crone who is miraculously also pregnant. And together they are celebrating, the text says specifically, the fruit of their wombs. I mean, in the 15th century, an old crone and an unwed mother celebrating fertility? Someone would have burned them at the stake, like they were witches. But this text is not about a meeting of some pagan fertility cult. It's not apocryphal writing. It's the gospel of Luke. It's our scripture. It's iconic. It's read in fundamentalist households everywhere. And it is so wild and so subversive and so surprising. It's all about Mary and Elizabeth's wombs. Inside their bodies, the bones of God and the bones of John the Baptist are being knit. Mary and Elizabeth prepare for the advent of Christ at least in part like all pregnant women prepare for birth. Their bodies change. Their breasts fill. Soon God will be sucking voraciously at Mary's breast. This is one of the oldest and most celebrated images in Christmas Christian art. Protestants tend not to think about Mary, the mother of God, that much. Protestants have been so cautious about venerating her unduly because I think they think it's idolatrous or somehow cultish or just too kitschy or theologically suspect. But maybe it's also a little bit to avoid confronting too palpably the human fleshly Jesus, the radically physical nature of our gospel and the revolutionary aspect of it all. The Immaculate Conception, however much it might have been co-opted, 
isn't about reinforcing some weird patriarchal notion of women unsullied by intercourse. It's a story that's taking things way outside the system that ran the world, way outside the religious institution and the patriarchal culture. And it's not because God hates the mighty and the rich and wants to smash them and incite the people to take up arts against the temple or have a bloody class war. But because something so much better needs to be born into the world. Because it's not through the system that runs the world that the grace of God comes. The Christmas story is about something new being born. Something really new. I mean, it may seem like it gets old, but I don't think it ever loses its potential to be revolutionary. Mary says it magnifies her soul. She rejoices. She's utterly delighted. It makes her heart big and expansive and hopeful. This story, this wild, beautiful story, convinces me that God's going to keep trying to find new ways into the world. Unexpected ways. Ways that the officialdom couldn't regulate, couldn't possibly. I think we should keep our eyes open. <laughs>